Hello, and welcome back to the Brew Theology podcast for our fall season. For this podcast episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Craig Blomberg from Denver Seminary about what the Bible really says about some hard topics, such as slavery, gender roles and equality, and homosexuality. I think you'll enjoy this discussion and all of the knowledge that Dr. Blomberg brings to the table. We are doing well here in Denver. It's 97 degrees, and two days from now, it's supposed to be 23 degrees and snowing. So things are great. And Ryan is getting used to Waco and the weather and all of the things going on there. So thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Brew Theology, you can find us at www.brewtheology.org, on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, and on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. So enjoy this discussion with Dr. Craig Blomberg, and this is part one of our discussion. Tonight, we have Dr. Craig Blomberg with us, distinguished New Testament professor from my alma mater, Denver Seminary, just down the road in Littleton. He's been there, I think, over 30 years. And I will say that out of my 20, man, it's been over 20 years of ministry. Dr. Blomberg was very foundational in, uh, in my early 20s of uh, helping me understand how to actually read the Bible. I don't think he realizes that. But I grew up, well, in a tradition where the Bible was just taken literally. And so here is a professor, amongst other great professors over there, who actually helped me uh, read the Bible in context. And uh, I learned this great word called hermeneutics, and I didn't know what that was at the time. So uh, I, uh, I say cheers to Dr. Blomberg for, you know, my early years and even today has, has stayed with me. And so uh, I'll let us all know that uh, tonight, uh, I understand that our group, we are an interfaith community. We have people who identify as Christians, some Catholics, some Orthodox, uh, some Protestant, some protesting Protestant, some people who just have a small C Christian. And uh, then we have agnostics, we have atheists, we have Buddhists, we have Jewish people. We have, again, people who maybe just don't like labels at all, but they like having meaningful conversations. And so what we do is we brew theology across the interfaith spectrum. And we create healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue in pubs and coffee houses and now in our living rooms. And so as we bring in speakers and content from across, again, that range, uh, what we do with everybody who presents, even if it's from our own particular group here uh, in Denver, is that we come with, uh, with respect and with grace and with openness. And so I'm hoping that whomever we ever have that – that you wouldn't agree 110% <laughs> with, with their particular views. But what you would do is you would uh, respect how they came to their uh, opinion, if you will. And so tonight, Craig is going to be talking about specifics within the Bible and Christianity. Um, and I, I think that the process from which he, he's, he's going to help us sort of move through is something that you can respect, even if you don't particularly like maybe where he lands on a view or two. And so I'm going to hand over to the mic, if you will, if we can do that. And Dr. Blomberg is going to have uh, time to present, have some slides, and then we'll have some Q&A. And then at the very end of all this, then Craig will come and he will uh, gather all those things. And either Janelle or Rob or myself, we will kind of help navigate through these questions. So there you go. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's 20 to 8. When do you want me to stop? Whenever. <laughs> that's a dangerous reply <laughs> okay I, I don't know uh give yourself you said what 45 minutes 
That's uh, fine. Definitely keep it to that. But we still are going to have time for Q&A, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'm sorry that uh, I don't have the ability uh, as, as the one presenting the slides, unless somebody knows a trick that I don't know, uh, to see everybody um, and see my slide. Uh, my slides, but uh, I will look at everybody once once this is done. I am sort of a writeaholic. I uh, have written a lot of books over uh, the years of teaching, and the next one to come out, uh, hopefully in June, uh, is called uh, Can We Still Believe in God, in which I take 10 of some of the most common uh, reasons that uh, people in recent years have given for why they don't believe, at least in the God of the Jewish and Christian tradition, um, and to ask, is there something from the New Testament? A lot of people address these questions. Philosophers address them. Ethicists address them. Old Testament scholars address them. Theologians address them. But is there any Thing that is uh, distinctive to the New Testament that does or doesn't help. And uh, Ryan suggested that you guys might like one of those 10 topics. And I said, well, you pick the one you think they'd be the most interested in. And so he said, well, what about this chapter on slavery and gender and homosexuality? And I laughed and I thought, yeah, you couldn't have picked the uh, any more controversial a chapter uh, where uh, only fools rush in, as the saying goes, where angels fear to tread. But uh, I, uh, I gave him the choice, so I'm honoring that and uh, try to say something meaningful about the topic. Yeah, if, if anybody agrees with me, even 90%, um, you must not be thinking to say nothing of 110%, because every one of these issues, people are just all over the map on. And if you're not terribly familiar with the New Testament, maybe this won't, on the first time round, make as much sense uh, as to some others. But uh, that's one of the reasons I put the slides together. And if you would, uh, if you'd like a copy of these, uh, feel free to email me. You can see how my name is spelled on the screen. Take out my middle initial and just put a dot there, Craig dot Blomberg, and then it's at. Denver Seminary, all run together, uh, denverseminary.edu. Tell me you'd like the slideshow, and I'll be uh, I'll be very happy to send it to you. Or maybe Ryan and Janelle have an easier way. But uh, I'm going to end with uh, a reference to a, a book that um, is now 19 years old, but I think it's still very timely, published in 2001 by a man named Bill Webb. He simply entitled it Slaves, Women and homosexuals. And one reaction at first that people have is, what the heck? What, what are you likening those three categories in some way? Um, and, and he was, but only in the sense that there have been a lot of people um, inside the church and outside the church who uh, have seen similar debates, uh, similar issues. Uh, since Ryan started it, I'll use the word he learned, uh, similar hermeneutical 
questions, interpretive questions on what the Bible teaches about these issues. And so there are some reasons for, for grouping the three of them together. So taking the order of his title and starting with the question of slavery, I will spend a little bit of time talking about the Old Testament, though I, I don't do much of that at all in the book. It's not a, a big book. But if we're going to talk about the Christian view, uh, we have to talk about uh, both Old and New Testaments. And some of the most troubling, that's the way to put it, themes and texts on these topics often come in the Old Testament. And, and so it would be less than honest to, uh, to avoid them. I think it's important at, at the beginning uh, on this first issue, uh, when we go to the Old Testament, to say <clears throat> there's, there's never a command. There's never any place in either Testament, for that matter, in which somehow slavery is commanded as a, an institution. Uh, we don't know how far back in human history it actually goes. Every nations surrounding ancient Israel practiced it in, in some form or another that we know of. Even by New Testament times in the first century, uh, people have estimated that maybe a third of the Roman Empire were legally slaves of some kind. And there probably were, were many cultures or at least subcultures that couldn't imagine uh, a different kind of world. But what we do see in the Old Testament, especially when we compare all of the laws dealing with slaves with other ancient cultures laws dealing with slaves is that there are clear limits, there are clear restrictions that are put in place, and overall the uh, laws seem to be much more humane than the uh, parallels elsewhere in the ancient Near East. That's uh, A-N-E is, is a typical uh, scholarly abbreviation for the, the ancient Near East. In fact, there was the possibility within Judaism that was relatively unique that uh, an Israelite could voluntarily sell himself or herself or a whole family or certain numbers of members of a family to become slaves for another Israelite family, usually a, a wealthy one who would hopefully treat them well, especially because they were fellow Israelites and uh, pay them for their services. And this was one way that uh, somebody could try slowly to get out of debt. Not my preferred approach, not a well-known one in uh, 21st century America, but uh, it apparently worked often enough that uh, it continued to be followed. And um, ancient Israel wasn't the only culture that had this, but it did have some opportunities that were built in, institutionalized, if you like, that the surrounding cultures didn't have that gave uh, most slaves at least a fair shot at some point in their lives, in many cases more than one opportunity, to gain their freedom. The sabbatical year, which uh, is described in Exodus chapter 21, talked about how every seven years slaves should be given the opportunity to gain their freedom if they wanted it. Not all did if they were in a, a good situation, being treated well, being cared for, but others uh, certainly would have wanted that opportunity. And if somehow this hadn't happened, 
then at least once every 49 years, there was an entire year that was called the year of Jubilee, in which debts were to be forgiven, land that had been sold off in order to pay debt was to be returned to its original owner, and uh, slaves were to be freed. So it's not an emancipation proclamation, but it's some interesting trends compared to the society of its time. Fast forward to the first century, and slavery in the ancient Roman Empire was an incredibly diverse system. There were horrors associated with it, no question about it. The men who worked in mines and those who were boat rowers. You may have seen some of the pictures of the what were called triremes, the ships with three pairs of oarsmen that could gain up to pretty good speeds. Uh, those were were back-breaking jobs, not to be desired by anybody. And uh, yet at the other end of the spectrum, there were uh, high-level senators, governors, leaders, school teachers, doctors, people in just about every walk of life who carried on. And many people might not even know that legally they were owned by somebody else. They might have their own home, their own household. And everything in between, as sadly has often been the case uh, for uh, female slaves. There were more horrors to face if you had a a ruthless master, the possibility, maybe even the probability of requiring sexual favors. But again, it uh, it was a very diverse system, if only because so many people were involved in it. When we start to look at what uh, the New Testament teaches, we see that there are some things that are said that fit the culture that nobody would have batted an eye at, though we do uh, today. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 and following, Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, and continues on for a few more verses in that vein. Some of us are shocked when we read that. Probably very few people in first century Roman world would have been, but chapter 4 verse 1 says something that was very rare in ancient instruction. First of all, the masters are addressed. There are some limits put on them. And Paul says, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also, assuming that it's Christians who are reading this, have a master in heaven. Masters, what were called in Latin, the pater familias, were the male heads of household. And they literally had, under Roman law, the power of life and death over wives, over children, and over slaves in their households. This is what would have jumped off the page to an ancient listener or reader of the text. And uh, in Ephesians, Paul expands all of his uh, instructions to people in household relations. And so we read uh, some very similar things to slaves in 6, 5 to 8, but then verse 9, again, he turns to masters and says, treat your slaves in the same way, in the same way 
Last verse is said, the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. No favoritism between master and slave? That's, uh, that's somewhat shocking. Another passage in a similar vein is uh, in 1 Peter 2. And I'll go through this selectively so I can honor my, uh, my time commitment. But there are two other texts that seem to go much, much further. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to a wide range of people and their positions in life. And he's saying, just because you become a believer, that doesn't mean you have to immediately imagine some uh, amazing status change. If you uh, are not circumcised, if you were a Gentile, you don't have to become circumcised. You don't have to, as it were, become Jewish in order to become a Christian. Um, if you are circumcised, you don't have to become uncircumcised. And whenever I teach this at seminary, I always get a hand and somebody goes, well, wait a minute, nobody could do that anyway, right? And the answer is wrong. There was a, a surgical procedure. I, I've not found anything, I think, that you shouldn't look at. If you Google the word epispasm, E-P-I-S-P-A-S-M. And if you do see something, uh, then turn it off. But uh, this was a, a surgical procedure uh, using a skin graft to try to recreate a male foreskin. And uh, men who were Jewish, but in culture or ethnicity only, wanting to be most favored status among their male friends when it came to athletics, which was done in the nude, or when it came to the local sauna or spa, which was done in the nude, sometimes had this, uh, this procedure done to them. And then Paul says the same thing. If, if you're free, don't become a slave. If you're a slave, don't think you have to become free. But then he adds in the second part of verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 7, but if you can gain your freedom, do so. And that is rather unparalleled for his world. The tiny little letter of Philemon. And when you guys, I guess it's next week, talk over some of this more. I've, uh, I've reproduced just a little bit of the text there for you to discuss. I think Janelle sent it out. Is all about um, a runaway slave whose master is a man named Philemon. He's a Christian man. He may be the head of a house church in the city of Colossae. And the slave, Onesimus, has met up with Paul in Rome, when Paul is under house arrest, become a believer, and Paul, with a group of people that are heading back in that direction, sends this little letter off with all kinds of hints and suggestions and instructions. And by the time you've read the whole thing, you wonder, did he just ask for Onesimus's freedom, or did he stop just short of it? I think he actually asked for his freedom, because it seems like he uh, hints around the topic and does everything except come out and ask, 
And then towards the end of the letter says, confident that you will do even more than I ask. And the reader goes, well, what else is left other than to give him his freedom? There's also a very early church tradition from the second century that says Onesimus was freed and he became the bishop, the church leader in a geographical section, uh, including Ephesus and Colossae by the, the 90s, the last decade of the first century. If that's an accurate tradition, then that confirms that. But why not even more? Why no emancipation proclamation? It may well be that it would have been an impossible dream in that culture. It may well be that Christians realized that their convictions were that spiritual status, being right before God, being free no matter what one's station in life was, was the, the more crucial issue. It's hard to know for sure, but at least it seems like things are pointing in good directions. So hold that thought. Now jump, uh, as the old Monty Python skits used to say, for something completely different, um, to the whole issue of gender roles. Everything of importance, I think, has to start here with the first chapter of Genesis, where all humans, male and female equally, are said to be created in God's image. And a lot of the disequilibrium, a lot of the injustice, a lot of the partiality has to be chalked up to the fall of humanity, as the ancient Jewish story tells it, uh, into sin. Yet, despite a very patriarchal culture throughout most of Jewish history, there are examples of women in amazingly prominent roles. Deborah, who's called a judge in the book of Judges, but basically that was like the ruler of the nation. Huldah, who was a famous prophet. Athaliah, who was a queen and not nearly as bad a queen as the evil Queen Jezebel. Unnamed women who are simply called wise women at different places, different locations, sort of like the local sage or, or guru. And others, many Christians are familiar with uh, the last chapter, uh, the last part of the last chapter of the book of Proverbs that talks about a noble wife. And it does not come across at all like uh, June Cleaver in uh, the 1950s in Leave it to Beaver. For any of you who've seen those ancient reruns, or if you're as old as I am, you can remember in black and white when they were first out. The uh, woman is a strong woman. She is a hardworking woman. She works for money. She sells her produce in the market. She considers a field and purchases it. All that has to be part of what we take into account. Uh, entire books in the Old Testament are written about Ruth, a young woman who's not an Israelite, who has been widowed, comes with her mother-in-law back to Israel, and um, proposes marriage to a wealthy man in the area. That's sort of backwards for that day. His name was Boaz. Esther, who uh, has to submit herself to a beauty contest to become the, the queen in Persia, winds up appealing to her Jewishness when the king didn't even know she was Jewish in order to save the whole nation from uh, a massacre that was scheduled for them. 
And that wonderfully sexy Song of Songs or Song of Solomon has amazing parody between the young lovers. You would never guess that one was uh, in any sense the, the head of the other. The only actual restriction in the Old Testament based on gender was that the priesthood was limited to uh, male descendants of Levi one of the sons of Jacob and one of the 12 tribes. So maybe not as horrible as some people make it sound, but still restrictions. What happens when you come to the New Testament? Well, no, there's no evidence that Mary Magdalene ever married Jesus, but she was part of a group of women that traveled around with him and his male disciples, potentially scandalous. I wonder what their sleeping arrangements were and were wealthy enough to be uh, supporters of Jesus and the Twelve. There is a Samaritan woman that Jesus meets up with and has such an amazing conversation with her, despite what appears to be a, a suspicious marital history, that uh, she goes off and becomes a, a witness to her townspeople, bringing many to Jesus, and then uh, all of the women including Mary, the mother of Jesus, who are there to be the first witnesses of the empty tomb, become, as it were, apostles to the apostles to tell them what they experienced. If you know the book of Acts well, you'll know the first uh, Christian convert in the entire continent of Europe was a wealthy seller of purple goods uh, by the name of Lydia, and that uh, another leading Christian who at times with her husband, helps to teach God's word more accurately than some other men were doing, was a woman by the name of Priscilla. And if you're really into trivia, you might have even heard of Phoebe the deacon and Junia the apostle and other people that Paul simply calls his co-workers. Not to mention that in Galatians 3.28, he says, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male and female. But there's always a big but. This one is spelled with just one T. What about those problem passages? And it seems like most of them are in Paul. Well, there are various possibilities. And uh, not to foreclose on further discussion, there certainly are extreme possibilities uh, in the history of the church, but after tons and tons of debate and with some outliers that don't fit my generalizations, it is interesting to see that uh, the extremes tend to be held by fewer and fewer people, and there's more of a middle ground as uh, people who call themselves complementarian meaning that men and women complement each other, but don't do exactly the same thing. And those who call themselves egalitarian, who think uh, that men and women in the church and in families should in today's world be able to do exactly the same things, are getting closer and closer together, even though there are some important differences that divide them. That same passage in Colossians 3 that talked about masters and slaves, talks about wives and husbands. Yes, it does use the S word, <laughs> submit, but uh, it does it 
just seven verses after a verse that sounds an awful lot like the one I just quoted out of Galatians, listing a whole group of categories of, of people, including Jew and Greek and slave and free and barbarian and Scythian, that all of those divisions are done away with in Christ, which you would assume then is a filter for interpreting what Paul has to say when uh, he gets down to verses 18 and 19, at least takes some of the edge off of, of his commands. Ephesians, oh my goodness, how many weddings and wedding sermons have talked about wives submitting to their husbands, even though most of the passage is about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, which is pretty sacrificially. But uh, even complementarians are more and more recognizing that Paul's instructions here have to be interpreted in light of a verse that says, uh, submit all of yourselves to one another. Mutual submission is the framework in which this takes place. First Peter 3 has a passage also about wives submitting to husbands, but here it's so that if any do not believe the word, if they're not Christian, they might be won over without a word. It's all for the sake of, uh, we might today call it outreach or, or evangelism, and they are called the weaker vessels. Not necessarily uh, physically weaker, though some think that, but because if they choose, even in some mild sense, to defer to their husbands, that made them quite vulnerable in the ancient world. A couple of puzzling passages in 1 Corinthians, um, what men and women do or don't put on their heads for worship, which probably had something to do with the signals that were sent in those cultures about one's sexual faithfulness or about one's religious allegiance. But what's fascinating is that Paul assumes that women will pray and prophesy. And although not everyone agrees, it's hard for me studying what people in the ancient world meant by prophesying not to include preaching in that category. I don't think that should be excluded even on a complementarian viewpoint. And then there are two very intrusive verses. I think these are the ones I've put down for you to discuss next week. Right in the middle of Paul talking about weird spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues, like interpreting tongues, like prophecy, like evaluating prophecy. And then he says, and women be silent. And then he goes right back to talking about tongues and prophecy again. Even most complementarians today will say, that's a sign that that has to apply in some very limited context. And then finally, 1 Timothy 2, 12 is a passage in which Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in a context where in almost every verse since the beginning of the chapter, Paul has been pairing words that more or less mutually define each other. Different words, but synonyms for prayer, different words for telling the truth, different words for proper and improper adornment and so forth. There are many growing number of complementarians who would say he's not referring to all forms of teaching or all forms of exercising authority, 
but an authoritative teaching role that would have been reserved or distinctive of a single pastor in a small church or whoever is designated as the most senior person in a, a larger church that has multiple pastors. For young people today who have not lived even through as much of, seems odd to say I've lived through history, but I'll be 65 this summer, so I've lived through history. Even to hear all of these things is a long way from things I heard in my childhood. But there is a second column and a fully egalitarian approach that says, go back to those two passages in Colossians and Ephesians, and notice how they are also qualified by, as in the sense that, in the way that is fitting in the Lord, only that which honors Christ. Certainly nothing that anyone ever asks you to do that dishonors Christ should ever be countenanced. 1 Peter 3, uh, others have made the observation as well, but egalitarians would go one step further and say, if the primary reason for submission was to win over a non-Christian husband in a culture where submission was taken for granted, might not the application of that in a culture where submission is a dirty word for the sake of evangelism be to not submit? 1 Corinthians 11, talks about the husband as the head of the wife, but the term there can in various places, including right in Paul's letters elsewhere, mean the source. And this could be a reference back to the story of Adam and Eve, of Eve being taken from Adam's rib, whether you take that literally or uh, some other mythological way. 1 Corinthians 14 could well be a very situation-specific command to silence in a culture where women had very few opportunities for religious education or instruction. And it's interesting because one of the things Paul says is if they have questions they want to ask, let them ask their husbands at home. And of course, today's world, the first question is, what if I don't have a husband? Um, good question. Most people were married either voluntarily or by their parents or the matchmaker, um, and it wasn't as significant an issue until or unless you were widowed or occasionally divorced. But maybe that's the key to saying this was a situation to avoid interrupting a significant church conversation about controversial gifts like tongues or prophecy with very basic questions that could and should be dealt with elsewhere. And when women have the opportunity for religious instruction, then that doesn't apply as it did then either. And finally, in 1 Timothy 2, it could be that what Paul is forbidding is not teaching or exercising authority per se, but the false teaching that uh, is very clear he is countering in every chapter of the book that seems to have had some relationship to the worship of the local goddess, the goddess in Ephesus by the name of Artemis, who, among other things, was believed by some to have actually been the creator of the world, which could explain what sounds like Paul's rationale that Adam was created first, not Eve, but he may actually be just setting right the story of creation.
I feel like at some point, if we unmuted the mics, uh, at least 13 of you would say, well, that was drinking from a fire hose. Guilty as charged. And now I have uh, eight minutes to do no justice whatsoever to our last topic, except to show you the slide and uh, wave my hands. Well, no, I haven't. Now I now I'll wave my hands. There we go. Problem is, I can only see a few of you at a time. I don't know whether any of you are even smiling at my dumb attempts at humor, but I hope a few of you are. Again, if we go back to relationships, human relationships, leading to sexuality, leading to childbearing, it certainly was from the very beginning, one man and one woman. There are horror stories in Genesis leading in part, not wholly, to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the end of Judges involving uh, what probably is best described as homosexual gang rape. A man lying with a man as one lies with a woman in Leviticus is one of a long list of sexual sins, including a lot of heterosexual sins that uh, are said to be an abomination before the Lord. But Again, every Christian should want to make a final decision on any topic based on both testaments put together, not just teaching out of the old, although that needs to be taken into account. So in the second column, well, if you turn to all four Gospels and the book of Acts, there is not a word anywhere about homosexual behavior. And silences lead people to make arguments from silence. There are people who say, see, if it was bad, Jesus would have said something about it. And there are other people that say, well, homosexuality wasn't very much known or practiced in Judaism, so Jesus probably just took the, the cultural viewpoint. And both of those could be right, and maybe neither of them is right. I think we have to be honest and say we just have silence there. Brief references in two of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, um, where homosexual activity, same-sex sexual intercourse, if you want to phrase it that way, are in a list of vices, certainly not condoned, but along with a whole lot of other things, including uh, heterosexual, sinful immorality. The passage that probably has to be finally determinative here, because there just aren't nearly as many in Scripture, is the passage, again, let you talk about it some next week, in the second half of Romans, in which uh, Paul seems to be thinking of every Gentile sin imaginable, which he begins by saying, all ultimately stem from the root of idolatry, of worshiping something that is created rather than the creator. And uh, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual sin, to worship, as it were, another human body is a, a powerful force as uh, as we all know, even if we don't necessarily think of it that way. He talks about people 
behaving in natural and unnatural ways. And uh, if you study all the ways, all the places Paul talks about nature and what's natural, it's usually referring to, as he understands, uh, the way things have been since uh, the time of creation, not uh, talking about uh, a person's orientation, as we might say today. There are people who have uh, well-intended, tried to limit Paul's instructions here to uh, same-sex temple prostitution, which was widespread practice in Greco-Roman context, or to uh, what we would call pederasty, a uh, young adult male with a prepubescent or barely pubescent boy practicing, as it were, before he went on to have a married heterosexual life. Here is the one verse and the only verse unambiguously in the entire Bible that applies the teaching about same-sex behavior to men to women as well. So where does that get us to in my final 150 seconds? Um, a chart. See if it's helpful. If not, throw it out. And this was William Webb's conclusion after a several hundred page study in far more detail than we've been able to go or would be able to go, in which he said, if you arrange all of the references that could potentially bear on slavery in the Bible, okay, it's not a perfectly straight line, but balance out the dots in the scattergram, and you basically have an upward ascending graph moving more and more in the trajectory of freedom and emancipation, which therefore makes it perfectly natural for Christians beginning after the first century and into the present and as long as we live to continue that trajectory of liberation. Same thing is true for gender roles. Some of the most repressive things are found early in Israel's history. It's not a perfectly straight line, but kind of works out to one. And you get to some of the later New Testament writings. And if Paul hasn't asked for Philemon's freedom, then he's certainly left the door wide open for somebody to uh, come in and do it. When it comes to same-sex sexual activity, however, there is just, uh, well, Webb calls it a flat line, like uh, in a hospital. Uh, there's no change. Uh, it's never condoned. You don't have the mixed bag of some models, uh, as with women who are incredibly positive models and others that are not. And um, therefore, he does not see an upward trajectory that should lead to uh, same-sex sexuality, sexual relations being considered a good thing in, uh, in a later context. There is the whole dump. I apologize for it being a dump. And I'm going to try to get out of this now so I can see... Oh, there's Ryan with that amazing logo behind him. Well, anyway, while I'm playing around, uh, somebody take over and do whatever we're going to do next. Thanks again for joining the Brew Theology Podcast. We'll be back next week with the Q&A time with Dr. Blomberg and hope you'll tune in and listen to our interesting discussion. Thanks again for listening. You can find out more about Brew Theology at www.brewtheology.org at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, and at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. 
please let us know what you think. And if you have topics you'd like us to cover, please let us know that as well. Cheers.